Happy New Year. We hope you all had a restful festive break because 2024 looks set to be a bit of a roller coaster ride. Not only is it the probable, almost certain, year of the next UK general election, something like an estimated 4 billion people will be heading to the polls worldwide. There are presidential elections in the US, Russia and Taiwan, as well as parliamentary ones in the EU and India. And if the political situation already looks precarious at home and abroad, it could be a whole lot different, at least, by the end of this year. Maybe more precarious, maybe less. You'd be a fool to try and predict what's going to happen. So, of course, that's exactly what we'll be doing. When will the next UK general election be? Who will win? What are the prospects for the UK economy? How might this affect an incoming government? Are there other important domestic political moments, general election aside, surely not, which we're at risk of overlooking? And looking further afield, could we see a second Trump presidency? What would be the consequences for Gaza or Ukraine? Might we also see the rise of the far right in the European Union elections? Or could a new European Commission push for a reset of UK-EU relations? And what do these events abroad mean for us? Well, if we manage to cover that lot in less than about a day, we'll be doing well, but we'll have a go. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. And I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe. And this is The Expert Factor. Before we get on to the general election, there are probably going to be things happening in Parliament and elsewhere before we get there. We know at least that there's going to be a budget on March the 6th, which I woke up on the day after Boxing Day, I think, to find that the Treasury had announced a lovely late Christmas present. But even ignoring that, Hannah, what other important parliamentary business remains to be completed before we do get to the election? Well, you know, Paul, that with me on the podcast, we're never at any danger of ignoring what's going on in Parliament. And you're quite right. I think that there is some stuff which potentially will have a bearing on the election, but in any case is important not to forget. We saw this week the government was debating its offshore petroleum licensing bill, and that led to a resignation from the government backbenches, Chris Skidmore, which means we're going to have a by-election, which is another unwanted by-election, another headache for Rishi Sunak in the weeks, months to come. Not least because that's a distraction, I think, for all the people who want to be off in their constituencies, campaigning, are going to have to head off to Chris Skidmore's erstwhile constituency to campaign there. So the sorts of things that the government is trying to do in Parliament, including that bill, are potentially going to have wider implications. We know, we knew from since before Christmas that the government's Rwanda policy would be one of those. We had the first and second reading of that bill before Christmas, not the defeat which the government feared at one point over that, and that will be coming back. I think that they potentially will manage to get through without losing that bill, but that will cause further headaches for them. And then, of course, they have a host of other bits of legislation they announced in the King's speech before Christmas, things like the Digital Markets Bill, the Economic Activity of Public Bodies Bill, the Anti-Boycotts Bill, which potentially has some risks around it for, for Labour. So plenty going on in Parliament, I think. The Anti-Boycotts Bill, what's that? That's the bill which is designed to prevent uh, local authorities from being able to engage in boycotts, uh, particularly it's targeted at uh, stopping people boycotting Israel. Although the Labour Party 
I think is planning to, to vote it down. There's some risk around that, I think, because of all the questions around Labour Party's position on Gaza and, and the Middle East. I confess that I had missed that one, though. I hadn't missed um, Chris Skidmore's resignation, which was quite striking, as it's not just from the Conservative whip, but from Parliament altogether. And that presumably is part of what you're referring to in general, the unruliness uh, around among the Conservative backbenchers, um, not just over that, but over asylum and, and so on. And how much of a constraint is that going to be on, on Rishi Sunak over the next several months? It's going to be an enormous constraint. I mean, I'd say two things, actually. Firstly, that particular bit of legislation strikes me as being completely unnecessary because they can hold these licensing rounds whenever they like anyway. That just struck me as a piece of partisan politics designed to weaponize the net zero issue. So everything is about politics this year, first and foremost. But secondly, the divisions in the Conservative Party are very serious. It seems to me very unlikely that the Rwanda bill is going to get onto the statute book before a general election, because even if it gets through the Commons and the House of Lords is able to hold it up for, for long enough to see us through to the election. So there's a lot of dissatisfaction in the Parliamentary Conservative Party. There are a lot of Conservative MPs that are unhappy with the state of the party and with the leader. The problem they have is they can't agree on what, to do, what, what else to do. So I think we'll stagger on with a weakened Prime Minister and a divided Parliamentary Party. I, for one, wouldn't see a, any sort of challenge to Rishi Sunak, however badly the local elections go, but it is a very, very weak government. And I think for someone like Chris Skidmore, I mean, he probably had been anyway planning to leave at the next election. He just chose to do it a little bit earlier to make a point of principle in relation to this legislation that he cares a great deal about, having having worked on climate change and wasn't averse to creating a little bit of political trouble around it. But that is potentially something that we could see more of. People who don't have much to lose on the Conservative backbenches who are anyway planning to stand down, doing so in inconvenient circumstances for the Prime Minister. And lest we forget, Paul, we've got a budget in March. What are you expecting from that? How could we possibly forget? As I say, it was um, quite a surprise to learn about this in that short period between Christmas and the New Year. A little bit early as well. 6th of March is um, at least a week earlier than we would normally expect to see about it, which itself created a flurry of speculation as to whether this might be in an early election. It's not obvious to me that it does. Um, the briefing has been pretty clear that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister are going to be looking for some, some more tax cuts. We've had some tax cuts pretty recently. The autumn statement announced two pence off national insurance contributions, which actually came into effect in early January. And given that this has been a very, very, very big tax increase in Parliament, I think the government's going to be quite keen to start getting things moving in the other direction. And they may well be able to say that they've got a bit of space for that. So the expectation, market expectations of interest rates have come down fairly sharply even since November. And given that debt interest spending is an important part of the budget, that might open up a few billion of notional headroom at the end of their five-year fiscal rule period to allow them to say that they can cut some other tax a bit more, whether that's abolition of inheritance tax or whether that's a cut to income tax or another cut to national insurance. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, it's really important to be clear that all of that is predicated on the expectation of some incredibly tight spending plans after the next election. And again, as you were saying, Anand, everything this year needs to be seen through a political lens. And clearly, the government's going to be thinking about 
in quotes, laying traps, close quotes, for a new Labour government, make it as difficult as they can by cutting things like income tax and national insurance, that it's quite hard for Labour to go into the election saying they're going to raise again and putting in place very, very tight spending plans, at least notionally, to create that sort of narrative where the opposition are said to be profligate or wanting to increase taxes and wanting to increase borrowing. But I think we're going to have to wait until after an election for anything which approaches a serious long-term fiscal plan of any kind. Paul, do you think there's any risk that the bond markets take fright again if all the main political parties in the UK are signalling that they're going to be cutting taxes and the markets look at the sort of spending plan think they just look implausible? Do you think there's a risk of a sort of a mini trust style loss of confidence in the markets in, in our political system over the course of the year? It's funny, I was just reading uh, a report in the press just now suggesting, I think the song from BlackRock suggesting that um, there is a danger of exactly that as we move towards an election in which it's difficult to make strong commitments. Assuming we don't have something astonishing happening in the March budget, I don't think we're going to have anything like what happened back in September 2022 when there was a very, very quick reaction to a very, very specific set of events. There is some danger that those buying government debt, and remember we are dependent on people buying that debt, there's some danger that they will ask for a higher return. In other words, higher interest rates because of some of those risks. Probably most likely there'll be a bit of sort of waiting and watching to see what happens, what the new government after an election ends up doing. So I think we may see that uh, creates a bit of a wedge between interest rates on government debt here and elsewhere, but I don't think on the kind of scale that we saw back in September 22. So a budget in March, a general election at some point, but even if there isn't a general election in May, and I mean, I my guess is there won't be, there will be Local elections, the biggest of those, uh, in some sense, will be the London mayoral election. Hannah, how important are these local elections likely to be, both in their own right and as a signal of what might happen in a general election? Well, I think they are important. I mean, as alongside that London Assembly election, the mayoral election in London, there are 10 other mayoral fights to happen, three of which are new mayors in the North East, East Midlands and York and North Yorkshire. And then, of course, we have a whole set of local government elections in places where in 2021, the time that these seats were last fought, the Tories did relatively well. So I think that if current polls are to be believed... Uh, the Conservatives may do relatively less well this time round, and that that will be seen if we haven't had a general election on the same day as a further negative sign for the Conservatives' prospects in the general election. And that is something that will no doubt factor into the Prime Minister's decision about when to go to the polls. On the other hand, you know they didn't do that well in the local elections in May last year. So you might take the view that there's nothing new and that incumbent governments generally do less well in these circumstances and you may think it's less significant as a factor. I think there are another couple of interesting things about these elections in May. One is that for the mayors and for the police and crime commissioners who are all up for re-election, this is the first time when they'll be elected by first past the post the government having made that change in the system. And that will be very interesting to see how that plays out. And the other is that for lots of places, this will be the first time when voter ID will be required for 
elections for people going to the polls. We've tried it once, but not in these places and not in this number of elections. And so that is something where there was a lot of concern in the last elections about whether it would affect turnout and affect certain uh, groups being able to vote. Uh, I imagine there will be a lot of publicity and people trying to highlight between now and those May elections the need for voter ID for people going to polling stations. But they will continue, I imagine, also to be concerned about the effect that that may have. And you mentioned almost in passing, this will be the first time that these mayoral elections are done on a first-past-the-post basis, because previously you've been able to um, express preferences and you would transfer your vote. This feels like a sort of move back, as it were, to the traditional first-past-the-post method. Is this done purely for sort of cynical reasons that the Conservatives think that no one transfers their votes to them, so they might as well have first-past-the-post? Does that give them the best shot? Or is there any other better reason for um, uh, f- for making that move? I haven't heard a better reason. <laughs> <laughs> a very diplomatic answer. Maybe I haven't been listening carefully enough. <laughs> I mean, but, but the, the mayoral elections are, are really interesting, though. I mean, particularly, I think, with the Tory ones, where you have uh, Andy Street and Ben Houch and the, a sign of, you know... So that's West Midlands and um, is it the... Tees Valley. Whether or not this sort of mayoral politics has a life of its own, in a way, whether these people... I mean, Andy Street in particular, who throughout his tenure has tended to distance himself from the Conservative label whether they have a sort of support base that bucks national trends will be very, very interesting to see. The other thing about the locals that I think we should look out for is how widespread tactical voting is, because the evidence from last year and the year before was that tactical voting was very, very widespread. So you saw, for instance, a huge surge in the Labour vote in areas where Labour were second, the huge surge in the Lib Dem vote where they were second. And I think that will give us some interesting pointers towards a general election whenever that is held. Well, let's uh, let's move on to that question of the general election. When, when will it be held? Come on, well, a, a quick answer from both of you. I kind of want it to be held in January because that's what I've got in the sweepstake, but I think it'll be held in November. Yeah, I'd also go for November. I think I've got the last Thursday in October in our sweepstake, but uh, all things considered now, I think November's probably a bit more likely. Indeed, the IFS is terribly far behind. We don't have a sweepstake on this at all. We, we often have sweepstakes on the length of the budget speech, which is much more exciting, clearly. Um, <laughs> We've even produced charts which show the distribution of blesses. <laughs> clearly, my staff don't have enough to do. No, more, more, more tragic still, yes. So I think um, an expectation of an autumn election are you willing to predict the results? Um, let's uh, let, let's do it. How, how many seats do you think the Conservatives and Labour will each end up with? Let's pin you down to something as precise as that. Well, I think that we may end up with Labour not having as significant a majority as the polls currently would indicate. It's obviously traditional for polls to tighten a bit as you move closer into an election. And we have to remember the reality that they need a big swing even to get a majority of any kind. I think they need a 7% swing to, to get a majority at all. So I'm going to predict a 30-seat majority for Labour. Mm, relatively modest. I kid you not, that was exactly what I was going to say. I'll stick my neck out and say that I think they'll probably get a bigger majority than that. Um, but it presumably, I mean, the, the role of reform in this is presumably potentially really quite important because they could take quite a lot of votes and seats away from the Conservatives. Or am I 
overstating that. No, no, you're absolutely right. And I think, well, let's be clear about one thing. Reform made a desperate effort at their launch earlier this month to claim that they were as much a threat to Labour as they are to the Conservatives. They're not. Uh, the new electoral coalitions that we've seen since 2019 means they're far, far more of a danger to the Conservatives than they are to the Labour Party. The big unknown, of course, is how active, if at all, Nigel Farage will be. Richard Tice does not have the same political skills as Nigel Farage. I think if Farage comes back, then there will be a serious threat to the Conservatives in a large number of seats. I mean, under Tice, what we've seen is reform polling quite well, but never quite reaching those levels when there's an actual election or a by-election or the like. So I think reform are a threat to the Conservatives, will be more of a threat if Farage plays an active role in the campaign. So um, supposing you're both right, supposing we're all right, and there is a, um, a, a Labour majority... What are we going to see from them in the first um, first couple of months? I mean, supposing they're elected in October, they'll have a, a couple of months to do stuff before year end. What, what will they be doing? What are the priorities going to be? Well, partly to defend the fact that I haven't got a clear answer to that. I think we'll, we will have a far clearer impression of that once Labour are forced to be more specific about their policy offers as the election approaches and we've seen a manifesto. I think... In power, given the economic circumstances they'll find themselves in, I think first and foremost, Rachel Rees will set out to show that she's a safe pair of hands. Steady as she goes, economic management is what I, what I expect in the first instance from a Labour government. I personally would like to see them be quite ambitious. I'd like to see them sort of try and roll out their plans for the one and a half million houses they intend to build very, very early on. I think if you can do it in the first hundred days, it's a lot easier than doing it afterwards. But I, my hunch is, and partly because this is a Labour thing, you think back to Tony Blair with that huge majority in 1997 and how cautious he was in the first term that actually it'll be a relatively slow start from a Labour government, just sort of proving competence. Uh, Keir Starmer has said that he doesn't want politics to be in your face anymore the way it has been over the last few years. Quiet competence, I think, is what we'll expect rather than any sort of fireworks from them in the first couple of months. I think I'm right in saying that if you have an election late next year or even in January, although I think the Prime Minister has, has indicated it will be this year at some point, but there won't be time to do a full spending review. So the spending review will have to be sort of effectively just rolled over for another year while they actually sort of prepare their wider plans. And I think that probably reinforces what Anand's saying about how it, it might be a relatively more cautious start as they get their plans in place. Interesting. It's, um, it's certainly one of the things that Tony Blair will say very clearly now is that he thinks it was a mistake to be so cautious in those first few years of the last Labour government. I wonder whether uh, Keir Starmer and Rachel Rees might have learnt from that and um, decided to do something slightly more significant early on. Though I have to say, the one skill that all politicians seem to share is a very, very sort of very, very sort of marked ability to be wise after the event. Oh, well, aren't we all? <laughs> um, it, it'd be interesting what happens in terms of a spending review and budget. I mean, I mean, you're right, Anna, there won't be time for a, a full review, but there'll certainly be time to make big decisions if that's what they want to do. I mean, they could decide to reallocate funding or to allocate more funding to particular areas. I mean, remember back in 2010, the Conservatives carried out some pretty significant in-year spending cuts. So the, the, these things are certainly not impossible. Supposing it's an October election, and this is a matter of matter dear to my heart and concerns, do you, do you think we'll get an emergency budget before Christmas? 
I'm not totally sure. I mean, I think for all that you say, and I agree, Anand, that Rachel Reeves will want to prove that she's a safe pair of hands. There are some things that they've said they'll want to do, like, for example, putting VAT on private school fees that they will want to get on and show that they mean business in terms of delivering their manifesto promises. So I think that even if it's not a sweeping set of changes that they want to put in through a budget, I think that they will want to show that they're being active and delivering on their promises. So I, I actually think I'd probably on balance, I think they might well be. No, but I think that's my working assumption. I think um, you know we got one when well, the Conservatives won in 2010, we got one when the Labour won in 97. So um, they, they seem to come along with change in, um, in, in government. Now, there's all sorts of things we could talk about in terms of the sorts of things that a changing government might mean. And, and, I mean, clearly one of the things that was a big issue of debate within the Labour Party before 2019 was about their attitude and their policy towards the European Union. They've been um, pretty silent, as far as I can make out, on that in recent years. We're clearly, I mean, they're clearly not in a world of rejoining or having another referendum or any of that kind of thing. But, I mean, do you think there'll be any serious change in policy? Uh, I think if there is, it will take quite a long time. I suspect what we'll see very early on is the new foreign secretary, perhaps Keir Starmer as well, doing the tour of European capitals, going to Brussels, showing that they intend to work closely with Europeans and to be good neighbours and good allies. So I think in, in, in the diplomatic sense, we might see quite a lot of activity. In terms of the asks that Labour have laid out that they might have from the European Union, they're going to take time to negotiate. So I don't, I don't anticipate anything happening very, very quickly, because the one thing you can rely on with the European Union is is it takes ages to negotiate stuff. That I'm sure is true. So that will be something that goes on in the background for a while. It isn't going to be terribly radical, I think, is what I'm hearing. Now, Hannah, we've had, uh, we'll had 14 and a bit years of Conservative rule. Before that, we had 13 years of Labour. Before that, we had, uh, what was it, 18 years of Conservative. So we seem to be in a, a world in which the ruling party changes over once every 15 years or so, which means that the new party entry office, the new ministers, be broadly speaking, pretty inexperienced in government. Is that going to be a problem for them? Well, it's funny you should mention this, Paul, because the IFG has actually done some analysis of this. And if Labour wins, and if all the current, current shadows enter government in the same roles that they have now, then actually it will be a more experienced team in terms of ministerial experience than either in 2010 or in 97. So I've heard this sort of line quite a lot that people are saying, oh, they're so inexperienced. And technically, they're, they're not as inexperienced as their predecessors. However, the more significant point is precisely the one you make, that when we have these sort of generational changes, relatively speaking, the Labour Party is less experienced at being a party of government right now. And that extends to their backbenchers as well as to their potential ministers. And government has changed quite a lot. The world has changed quite a lot since Labour was last in power. So that's why I think it's important, and we put out a report on this in the first week of January, making precisely this point that uh, Labour, if they think they've got a good chance of, of winning the general election, need to put effort into preparing for government as well as campaigning. And that means thinking through what it would mean to, to be a minister and trying to gather intelligence and understand how government is now. And I believe we're going to do an entire podcast on this subject, so I won't. I will leave it there. Excellent. Well, let's uh, let's not say more about that. 
Before we move on to other issues, in particular the sort of economic outlook post uh, an election, um, we've been talking very much as though a Labour victory is nailed on, but actually each of you is projecting a pretty modest majority, uh, and that suggests that at the very least you think a government which has not got a Labour majority is a possibility. Do you think there's any real chance the Conservatives will actually win? I think it's conceivable that the Conservatives emerge from the election as the largest party. It's not likely, but it's conceivable. And I suppose the route to that is via obvious improvements in the economic situation. And Sunak essentially being a bit like John Major and just saying, would you trust Labour with this fragile recovery or the plan is working, stick with us. I mean, that that I think is the campaign they want to run, but it will depend on the economy to a lesser extent, but still to some extent on small boats. But I wouldn't rule it out. Absolutely not. I think it's pretty unlikely that they will end up with an outright majority if they're not the largest party. The important thing to think about is what that means in terms of, of government formation, because they don't have other natural coalition partners. So then the question would be, you know, do they try and govern as a minority? Do they try and call another election quite quickly to secure a larger majority? Or is it in fact the case that a coalition gets put together between other parties, which would be, uh, you know, an unusual uh, situation for, for the UK. But I think, you know, we mustn't rule out the possibility of an unclear outcome and all the messiness, as we've seen in recent years, that can cause. Something remarkable is going to happen, isn't it? I mean, either there's a huge swing since the last general election to provide Labour with a significant majority, or these polls narrow dramatically so that Labour don't get a significant majority. Something, something remarkable is going to happen at the election. So we can look forward to that. Just to come in quickly, Paul, I think it's worth saying, you know, you did that sort of comparison of long periods of government. The one thing that has been very different in the last 14 years are just the eye-watering levels of volatility among the UK electorate, like of which we've never seen before. I think I think between 2010 and 2017, 49% of voters changed the party they voted for. We've never seen anything like that before. So politics is a lot more unpredictable. And of course, our electoral system since 2010 hasn't been reliable in generating single party government. So I think we live in a whole different political world now than we did in some of those periods in the past that you referred to earlier. Yeah, of course, it's not just the electorate that are changing. I mean, the, um, the the offer from the parties is changing pretty dramatically. You know, I think we'll see little in common between the um, 2019 manifestos and the 2024 manifestos on either side, but probably particularly on the um, on the Labour side. I mean, obviously, one of the key issues after an election is what the economy's going to be looking like. And indeed, one of the things that will determine possibly when the election is, is how the economy moves. And uh, Rishi Sunak, Jeremy Hunt will no doubt be hoping that things move in their direction. Despite what they say, I think there has to be a significant chance that um, the Bank of England will cut interest rates at some point between now and the autumn, which may well help with a narrative about things getting better. Uh, there's a, a reasonable chance that the economy won't do as quite as badly as, as, as the Bank of England are projecting um, at the moment, though I don't think things are going to be going terribly well. But we're going to end up with an election, if it's towards the end of this year, in which we've had a long period of economic stagnation, in which the deficit and the debt remain really quite concerning, and in which some of the choices that an incoming government's going to face will be really very difficult Indeed. I mean, if a new Labour government seriously wants to get some money into the public services and work for the Institute for Government shows pretty clearly that a lot of those public services are 
struggling to put it uh, put it mildly they're going to struggle to find that money unless they're willing to increase taxes clearly neither rachel reeves nor keir starmer i assume are going to tell us anything very significant about any plans to increase taxes other than here and there on private schools or here and there on foreign non-dons but do either of you even have a sense of where privately labor might be on this i mean do you think they're they understand that if they want to increase spending they're going to have to raise taxes or do you think they really are absolutely um, wedded to the idea of not raising taxes and not raising borrowing and therefore the, making use of what um, I think Duncan Robinson from the Economist calls the reform fairy. There's not the, um, isn't the magic money tree to sort things out, but there is the reform fairy to sort things out. We'll just reform things and everything will be fine. Um, I mean, wh- where do you think in their sort of heart of hearts, in their you know, private movements that they don't um, share with the press, where, where, where do you think they are on this? It's very, very hard to know is the simple answer. And I think their thinking will be shaped by how big their majority is, to be honest. You know, if they come out of the election with a significant majority, much bigger than Hannah and I uh, have predicted, that might give them the sense of having a bit more room and a bit more time. Maybe, you know, you can start thinking about two terms of government, which might make it more palatable to raise taxes early on and the knowledge that you've got a significant cushion over the Conservatives. But it is it is one of those things. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a fool's errand to try and think this through, I think, because they've been very good at not really giving any clues as to what their intentions might be. I mean, you have a similar thing with the 28 billion investment in green technologies. They've made lots of hints about the fact that that's going to be pushed back and that they're not going to borrow extra to do it. But whether or not once they're in power, they'll face pressure to actually act on this. It's really hard to say. I don't know, Hannah, whether you've got more clues than I have, but I am, as you can hear, pretty clueless. No change there, Anand. I mean, I, I think it's deliberate on their part that we're all feeling in the dark over this. Uh, it's precisely the case, as you say, Paul, that Labour don't want to be uh, marking a, a difference from the, the Conservatives in terms of tax rises and so on. And, and all the signs are that they are going around searching very hard for that reform fairy and wherever he or she may, may be hiding trying to find the ways in which they think they can make a significant difference to delivery of public services and many of the really intractable questions which exist for the UK state by changing structures, by changing processes, by changing the way things are done. I slightly suspect that they think there might be a whole sort of shelf full of excellent ideas that the, the civil service has on this front which the Conservatives have just been refusing to take off the shelf. I fear they may be disappointed on that front uh, when they get into government. I mean, that's a little unfair, but it is obviously the case that most of the reforms that would really yield significant changes to public services are going to cost money. And there's just got to be a question about where that's going to come from. Yeah, I think what's most interesting about the Green 28 billion pledge, it's really a 20 billion pledge, more than, you know, is it going to raise taxes, is it going to increase borrowing? It's just... It, it's a remarkable statement of priorities. I mean, they've not promised anything for education. They've not promised anything, or, or, or at least not very much, and they've not promised anything particular on, on health. But um, the one big pledge is for investment in green technology and the, and the climate transition. I, I, I rather wonder whether they're slightly 
regretting that, but it's um, quite a surprise, I think, given the needs of some of the other services. And I'm not in any way saying that there isn't a need if we're going to get to, as we need to, to get to, to net zero to do that. But it is it has been a big uh, a big part of their offer so far. I mean, it's more fundamental than that, isn't it? I mean, given what the U, what the Chinese are doing, what the, the Europeans are doing, what the US are doing, it's not simply about meeting your green targets. It's about not being left behind as others invest enormous sums in these technologies. Uh, and if these really are the technologies of the future, then there is a case to be made that actually we risk falling fatally behind other economies if we're not doing the same thing. The other thing I say is that I think this is why the house building plan is so important because, I mean, there will be some government investment around this, you'd think. But actually, compared to the other things like investing in public services, overcoming planning log jams to get houses built is one area where I suspect Labour might move quite quickly. Yeah, and um, I mean, all, all power to them. Most efforts to do this in the past have foundered pretty quickly. But it, you're right, it does have the advantage of not costing public finances. Like, there's a bit of cost there because if you're going to build houses, you need to build the roads and the, and all, all the other things that go with them. But um, that's the sort of thing which over a protracted period of time can have a real effect on the economy and, and on intergenerational inequity and so on. But again, you know, the, the, this is one of those things where it takes time to have that real effect. We probably ought to briefly move off the parochial. I mean, this is supposed to be a sort of look forward to the year as a whole. And there are some quite big things going on in the world as people will have noticed. It's, um, it's been dubbed the year of elections, given uh, elections going on in, in, in other places. Of course, we've got war continuing in Ukraine. We've got the awful situation in Israel and in Gaza. Um, but let's focus initially on that other election, which will be taking a lot of our attention over the next year, which is the election in the US, where there has to be at least a significant chance that we'll end up with a second Trump presidency. How will that affect us? And I suppose in particular, um, supposing Keir Starmer uh, enters number 10 at the end of October and then President Trump wins in November, how's that going to affect UK politics? Just in a very simple sense, it's going to make international affairs much harder to ignore. Prime ministers always find when they get into office that the foreign international duties are far more time-consuming than they had anticipated and that all the things that they've promised domestically to the electorate, the, the, the time they're able to spend on that personally is constrained by their international duties. But I think that a Trump presidency will mean that Ukraine and how we position ourselves in relation, presumably working with Europe to support Ukraine at that point, if if the money dries up from the US side, although it already seems to be doing that, will be something that will, Keir Starmer would have to spend time on at that point. It could even be more fundamental than that. It's not inconceivable that within his first month in power, Trump basically undermines NATO. All it takes is a US president to say, well, you know, that Article 5, we have absolutely no intention of honouring our commitment to our allies. And the whole security situation in Europe is fundamentally transformed. So I think Hannah's absolutely right. A Trump victory means that a new Prime Minister Starmer is going to be spending a lot more time on international affairs than perhaps he'd bargained for. And presumably, one of the things that I think a lot of people are concerned about is Donald Trump has indicated he might not be willing to give quite so much, if any, support to Ukraine. And in that world, 
I guess the UK and European leaders have to make a really big decision about the extent to which they make any effort to step into that gap or they really leave Ukraine at um, the mercy of President Putin. Yeah, and there were some figures brought out today, actually, that illustrated just how paltry the financial contributions from countries like France, Italy, Spain to Ukraine have been as compared to the Germans who are way out in front and us who come second in terms of the European League. Those figures are going to get an awful lot bigger if we're going to... No, they all look paltry compared to the US. No, absolutely. I mean, the US numbers are... I mean, it's important for people to understand. I mean, the US numbers are multiples of the combination of everyone else. Yeah, yeah, as you say, there are going to be some really hard choices facing Europeans as a whole. The European Union is going to face some difficult decisions because, of course, there's a membership perspective now for Ukraine as well. And on top of that, I don't know if you saw this recently, but in Sweden, senior military commanders have told the Swedes to get ready for conflict. God, I haven't seen that. No, well, why? Why? Well, were they, they worried over a Russian invasion? Yeah, there is serious concern in Eastern Europe about Russia's intentions should the US proved to be an unreliable ally. And of course, one of the one of the paradoxes of the current situation is that in a sense, NATO is restraining some of those East European states. I think countries like the Baltics and the Poles would be far more proactive over Ukraine were they left to their own devices. And should doubt be cast over the effectiveness of NATO, it's not inconceivable that we see some of those countries intervening far more directly in Ukraine. So the, the number of security challenges the Trump presidency would cause are quite terrifying in many ways. Just to cheer you up. Jolly good. <laughs> I'm usually the um, yeah, the miserable one. Um, la- last thing we ought to cover doesn't directly affect us anymore, but European elections. We got European elections this year? European Parliament elections in June, yeah. They're important in, in several ways. I mean, you know, everyone here is focused on the far right and the far right might do better, but they won't end up governing the European Parliament. But I think, you know, if you see a shift in the balance of power in the European Parliament, then the trajectory when it comes to the Green New Deal could shift quite fundamentally because the centre-right has been making some rather negative noises about the scale of investment the EU had initially foreseen. So, yeah, the European Parliament elections will be important in terms of where the European Union goes in policy terms over the next five years. So before we move off the rest of the world, clearly the big new issue that's facing the world over the last uh, few months has been what's happening in, in Gaza and the awful war between Israel and Hamas. How is that going to play out through 2024? And is this something that we parochially, uh, the UK, ought to be worrying about? I mean, the situation in Gaza is absolutely unspeakably horrible as it is. But if we're thinking in sort of selfish terms about us, it's not just the horror of the conflict, but there is also the real danger of that conflict becoming regional. If Israel finds itself actually in conflict with Lebanon, if Iran gets more involved, that sort of regional instability will impact far more directly on us than the conflict is at the moment. We've seen a hint of that with the activities of the Houthis in the Red Sea, but the potential economic and geopolitical implications of that conflict spreading are, again, huge. And even if it doesn't spread, then our Prime Minister is going to spend some time thinking about how to deal with the aftermath of conflict in Gaza, because whatever happens and whenever that ends, we still need to figure out a way of trying to come to a stable solution of the Israel-Palestinian standoff. What's the UK's role there? I mean, obviously, we understand that the UK has got a historic role in the setting up of the 
trail and some of the issues that are, are faced. But is it realistic to think that a British Prime Minister, whoever that might be, has any real role in settling anything in that region? Is this not really just for the US in terms of its influence on Israel and the neighboring states? Or, or is, it, is there something real about the statements or actions of not just British leaders, but, but European leaders? I mean, clearly the US is the key player, but I think the UK, in collaboration with European allies, has a role. We'll have to see what the situation looks like when the conflict ends. But it looks to me as if there's going to need to be international guarantors to some parts of any post-conflict settlement. Uh, and there is going to be the need for an injection of cash into Gaza to rebuild. So I think Europe as a whole is going to have a role to play because, again, under a Trump presidency, it might be that the US is less inclined to get involved. And of course, this is a region right on Europe's doorstep. Well, We've covered the world in 10 minutes, which is, I'm afraid, all you've had time for. I think we've pretty much come to an end of our preview of 2024. But it says on the paper in front of me that there is some sport as well happening over this year and some football in Germany, apparently. And I believe that you are mildly interested in this sort of stuff. Will England win in Germany? I don't think they will, no. But the most important part about the football in Germany is how obviously rigged the ticket ballot has been. And that is something you'll hear me talking about a lot during the course of this year. Does that mean you didn't get a ticket? That means exactly that, yes, sadly. Absolutely shocking. <laughs> and and an, Olympics, uh, an Olympic Games in Paris. It'd be a very good moment for a gilet jaune reprisal. Well, that, that was a cheery preview to the coming year. We know we're getting an election here in the UK, but whoever's elected is going to be facing some pretty difficult choices. We're probably not going to get a lot better off ourselves over this year. Might be a, a limited amount of honesty from the various parties taking part. The world as a whole looks pretty difficult. The job of a new British prime minister may be made even more difficult by the results of presidential election in the US, and you've heard it, heard it here first, that we're not going to win the football in Germany either. Nevertheless, there is one bright thing on the horizon, which is that the expert factor will be with you weekly through this year as we run up to the election, and you'll be able to listen to the three of us being miserable together, but hopefully cheering you up for the rest of 2024. Remember, you can find us at Acast, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Do subscribe and please do leave us a review. We like to know that you haven't had anywhere near enough of experts. We'll be back next week for another deep dive. So please do join us and do get in touch to suggest the type of topics you'd like us to explore. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them. See you for the next instalment of The Expert Factor.